passage this morning is from Colossians 3, 1 through 17, from the Message Translation. I'm sorry, did I say I'm she, her? I am. I'm not used to that yet. I'm not used to that level of respect. I'd like to show it to other people. Okay. So, if you're serious about living in this new resurrection life with Christ, act like it. Pursue the things over which Christ presides. Don't shuffle along, eyes to the ground, absorbed with the things right in front of you. Look up and be alert to what's going on around Christ. That's where the action is. See things from his perspective. Your old life is dead. Your new life, which is your real life, even though invisible to spectators, is with Christ in God. He is your life. When Christ, your real life, remember, shows up again on this earth, you'll show up too the real you, the glorious you. Meanwhile, be content with obscurity, like Christ. And that means killing off everything connected with that old way of death. Sexual promiscuity, impurity, lust, doing whatever you feel like whenever you feel like it, and grabbing whatever attracts your fancy. That's a life shaped by things and feelings instead of by God. It's because of this kind of thing that God is about to explode in anger. It wasn't long ago that you were doing all that stuff and not knowing any better. But you know better now, and so make sure it's all gone for good. Bad temper, irritability, meanness, profanity, dirty talk. Don't lie to one another. You're done with that old life now. It's like a filthy set of ill-fitting clothes you've stripped off and put into the fire. Now you're dressed in a new wardrobe. Every item in your new way of life is custom-made by the Creator with his label on it. All the old fashions are now obsolete. Words like Jewish and non-Jewish, religious and irreligious, insider and outsider, uncivilized and uncouth, slave and free mean nothing. From now on, everyone is defined by Christ. Everyone, everyone is included in Christ. So, chosen by God for this new life of love, Dress in the wardrobe God picked out for you. Compassion, kindness, humility, quiet strength, discipline. Be even-tempered, content with second place, quick to forgive an offense. Forgive as quickly and completely as the master forgave you. And regardless of what you put on, wear love. It's your basic, all-purpose garment. Never be without it. Let the peace of Christ keep you in tune with each other, in step with each other. None of this going off and doing your own thing. And cultivate thankfulness. Let the word of Christ, the message, have the run of the house. Give it plenty of room in your lives. Instruct and direct one another using good common sense. And sing. Sing your hearts out to God. Let every detail in your lives, words, actions, whatever, be done in the name of the Master Jesus, thanking God the parent every step of the way. All right. I don't know if you were like me growing up. I don't know. I guess this might be a universal thing or an American thing. I'm not really sure. But I was taught growing up that you, there's two things you don't talk about in, a, in public, right? What are they? Religion and politics. Is that universal? Is that American? Terry, the politician? International. Thank you, Cynthia. Thank you. All right. What happens when we don't talk about it, though? <laughs> we don't learn how, right? 
And so we cripple ourselves because we don't know how to have those hard conversations. We don't know how to have those conversations because we don't know how to disagree in a way that honors you but doesn't devalue myself. And it's hard to navigate those things. So because we don't know how to talk about these things really well, it makes Thanksgiving a little tricky sometimes. It makes Christmas a little tricky sometimes. It's, um, you know, you, you've got the, uh, the opportunity to, like I have done so many times in my family, just try to make myself smaller, just kind of blend into the wall when those conversations come up because I don't want to be the black sheep. I don't want to be the one that's rocking that boat or we don't go at all. Or we're the one that throws the nuclear missile into the middle of the turkey and dressing and just let it all burn down. We lead the feast, knowing that we were right and they were wrong and we have moral superiority. We won. I've done that too. But what do we win? And is it possible that by seeing it as losing and winning, we've lost what really matters? So what really does matter? It's people. It's people who always matter more. Not our winning argument. Not our theological or political astuteness. It's about loving our neighbor. And it's kind of hard to do that once we've verbally decimated them at the table. Philip Yancey says that we live in an atmosphere choked with the fumes of ungrace. People matter. A while back, some of you fine folks here at Imago convinced me to start watching a show called Ted Lasso. And I, I said something a little bit about it this week in Imago Weekly. If you have not seen this show, this is a spiritual imperative. You need to download this show. It's on Apple TV. I think it's $4.99 a month. There's some choice language in the episodes, and you're just going to have to move past that. But the... But the but the message of this show is just so beautiful and wealthy and wonderful and so needed right now in our world. You need to watch it. In one of the episodes, one of the characters asks, is it better to be loving or to be right? One of my greatest struggles in life is this pathological need to always be right. I love to correct people. Um, now, I do it in a sweet, bless your heart kind of way. I do have manners. But along the way, I know that I have harmed people with my belief that my moral and my intellectual superiority is more than theirs. Several years ago, Anna Catherine, she's my only daughter, and she's 23 now. When she was one, uh, we were visiting family in uh, Georgia for Christmas, and we were driving back home, and we had gotten turned around in Birmingham. And um, I'm from Alabama, in case you don't know. Uh, so we're turned around in Birmingham, and my husband at the time had just really messed the thing up, and he was not listening to me on where to go. I'm like, it's right here. It's right here. It's right here. No, it's not. No, it's not. And so we get turned around, and we get lost, and I'm mad, right? Because he's wrong, and I'm right. And so Anna Catherine's in the back seat and starts crying, and she needs a bottle. So I bottle of uh, the diaper bag and I'm pouring that formula in there and I, just, just, and I put my hand on top of that bottle and I'm just shaking it and I'm just giving him what for how wrong how stupid he is and what an idiot who just 
just shaking that bottle, shaking it. And all of a sudden, my hand slipped just a wee bit on top of that bottle. And that all eight ounces of that milk and formula just exploded all over the car. My ex-husband would say later, he said, all I saw was white out of the side of my face. <laughs> I was covered in it. The kids were covered in it. It was everywhere. And that's when I learned a little bit of a valuable lesson from, from the Lord. It's called something that I like to call the holy shut up. I, I don't know if y'all have ever had one of those. I get them quite frequently, just like, you know, just shut up. It's enough. Shut up. I know we like to think God wouldn't say shut up. But I think God sometimes does say, shut up. So how do we disagree with one another in a way that honors them and values that person, but also we honor ourselves too, our own voice? And could we try to put some of that into practice for this holiday season? But before I get into this, I want to say two things up front, because I do not want anyone to misunderstand me here this morning. You do not have to go. You don't. If that is not a safe environment for you, if this is just not the year for you to put up with some of that stuff, don't go. You don't have to. Nobody will ask you. I'm never going to ask you. I'm, not, I'm never going to say you should do that anyway. You should do those hard things. Sometimes we should do hard things, and sometimes we shouldn't. I've been, I've been there. There's Thanksgivings and Christmases. I've just sat out and said, I'm going to stay home this year. I can't do it. That's okay. Second of all, no one, especially Jesus, expects us to remain silent in the face of racist, homophobic, misogynistic, transphobic, and bigoted remarks, stories, or jokes, period. We don't have to put up with that. We don't. We don't have to sit silent to that. You know, some of us have been silent for too long in those situations. I'm preaching to me first. That's the time to call those things out. You know the story of Jesus flipping tables in the gospel? <laughs> it wasn't because he caught somebody smoking in the boys' room. It was because he was mad because poor people were being exploited. Their poverty was being capitalized on by this system. And it was wrong. It was taking advantage of people that didn't have it to give. They were the poor of the community. They were disadvantaged. They were the marginalized. That's when Jesus flipped that table over. And when that happens in front of us, we need to be flipping some tables over too. When we hear remarks that are in this vein, these racist, homophobic, misogynistic, bigoted, transphobic remarks, flip the table. Just be ready to leave before you get to eat the good dessert. Now that I've said that, let's move on. So there's a book that I would encourage you to get and read. You can borrow mine. It's all marked up, but you'll be all right. I think you're wrong, but I'm listening, and it's based by two females who are really good friends. One is a, a very committed Republican, and the other is a very committed Democrat. And they talk about, they actually have a podcast, what is, Pantsuit Politics? Pantsuit poli pant Politics. Uh, I encourage you to listen to that as well. And how to have healthy discourse with one another over things we disagree on. It's a very good book. Holland and Silvers, the authors, talk about how we choose a team when it comes to politics, and we put on that team's jersey, and that team becomes us. I am a Republican. I am a Democrat. 
But listen to what they have to say about this team mentality. It is easy to fall into the team sports mindset. For many of us, the jerseys become our entire identity, informing everything from the articles we, ret we retweet to the types of music we enjoy. We recite the talking points and are unwilling to even entertain the idea that we could be wrong. We enter every conversation as an opportunity to score points for our team while simultaneously staying on the defensive. If a member of our team appears in the latest breaking news bulletin, we're justifying their bad behavior before Wolf Blitzer can cut to the first commercial break by talking about how much war worse the other guys are. Those team jerseys can blind us to what is true about our own team. And it also can blind us to any good that the other team might have. There's a real chance that the person on the other team is eventually seen as our enemy, as a threat. But here's the real truth about your team and my team. They inherently divide. And they can keep us from seeing one another as people of value, people made in the image of God. They can keep us from remembering that we must put on that all-purpose garment of love, that basic garment of love, and seeing that person with the eyes of Christ. As Holland and Silver say, the more we perceive this person as outside our group or not on my team as a threat, the more willing we are to treat them badly or to say bad things about them. By not seeing it from someone else's perspective, we do not allow ourselves to learn and grow. And we lose the ability to see things as they really are. And as Holland and Silver say, we are disconnecting from one another because of it. At some point, we've got to take the jerseys off. I've been seeing quotes on Twitter and, and Facebook that say Christians are being discipled by CNN, Fox, or MSNBC rather than the gospel. And I believe there's some truth in those quotes. And I'm just as guilty as anyone else. I forget Colossians 3 is there. I forget that I've been given a new wardrobe picked out for me, a garment that should be informing how I live my life. I forget that politics is not the whole of my life, and I do love politics. I always have. And I believe that it's imperative that we are a part of that process. But we have to remember that we bring our faith to our politics, not our politics to our faith. And we're forgetting that, guys. We're forgetting that. Ladies and gentlemen, we are forgetting that. So if we could just manage for at least a moment to take our team jerseys off at the Thanksgiving table this week and instead put on our all-purpose garment of love, what could that look like? I think, for starters, those thick fumes of ungrace that Yancey spoke of might could become thin tendrils of smoke and maybe even dissipate altogether. It could allow us to hear what someone is saying with thoughtfully listening to somebody else's thoughts and opinions instead of assuming bad character in that person or think that they are unintelligent or not altogether right in the head. That's a southernism for you. Yes, the Imago Day is in your conspiracy-loving uncle. Yes, the Imago Day is in your pro-choice sister. Yes, the Imago Day is in, wait for it, Nancy Pelosi, Bernie Sanders, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. I apologize if I said that wrong, I probably did. And yes, the Imago Day is in Donald Trump, Kevin McCarthy, and George Bush. 
Do these people reflect that? Nobody say anything. Please nobody say anything. I'm not even looking. I'm not even looking for a head nod. I'm closing my eyes. Do we? Do I? Now, most of you know that my political leanings have shifted over the years, um, much to the chagrin of close family and friends. My best friend of 20 years, Andy, we grew up with the same political and theological leanings. Mine changed. Hers has shifted some, but not like mine have. And yet we have made it a, a priority that we maintain our friendship and our relationship. Do we have uncomfortable conversations sometimes? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But we have made the determination that there are some things that we see together the same, that loving our neighbor really should mean something. I was talking to her on the phone this week, and she was sharing with me her husband, who has had COVID since the summer, is one of the long haulers. He's having some um, uh, lingering symptoms, and they were in the emergency room this past week in Huntsville uh, for him. And she said the you know the, the emergency room was you know overrun with people, and there was a uh, a man there, an older gentleman, who was saying uh, it was just being very belligerent about things and, and there was an African, African-American woman there in a wheelchair and he started yelling at her in front of the entire ER and he was using the really bad words out loud in front of a room full of people in an ER. And Andy was horrified and, and she said nobody flinched, nobody moved. They just sat there like stumps on logs. And she looked at her husband and she said, oh, I can't, I have to. He was like, oh, no, oh, no. Ooh, somebody will kill us, we can't. She's like, I can't do this. I cannot do this. And so she stood up and at that man, she said, you need to hush your mouth. That's not okay. And he kept going and she went to the front desk and she said, Somebody needs to call security. This guy needs to leave immediately. And the guy kept going. And the, and the, the lady behind the desk just kind of half-heartedly paid attention to her. And she kept on. She kept saying, do y'all, do y'all remember the, the movie Terms of Endearment when Shirley MacLaine's daughter is dying of cancer and she can't get her medicine in time and she's at the nurse's desk and she's pounding, my daughter needs medicine now. So Andy was doing all that. You know, you got to get this guy out of here now. This is not okay. Security finally came and took him out of the room. Andy goes over there to the woman who was sitting in the wheelchair. She had her eyes closed. And Andy knelt down beside her and put her hand on her knee, and and she just said, I am so sorry. I am so sorry. And and the the woman just had a tear roll down her face and just nodded. And I, I was telling Andy, I was like, because that is not new for her. Would I have had the guts to do something like that in an emergency room in Huntsville, Alabama? I don't know. I don't know if I'd have been brave enough. But if there's ever a time to flip a table, my friends, that is it. When someone is being dehumanized, that is our cue. That's it. Flip the table. There's no agree to disagree on the humanity of another person. But remember, when we flip that table, there shouldn't be any stones in our hands to throw. 
We don't flip a table with one hand with a pile of stones and the other doing like fists in their face and flipping the table in their face. Flip the table. We should flip the table. But we don't try to bloody them up, although we want to. And that's the struggle, right? If somebody says something in front of me that's incredibly ignorant about LBGTQ issues, I see red. You know why, right? Because of my children. I will cut you. That is my inclination. I hope there's not any really small children in here that just heard me say that. That would be terrible. I'm sorry. If somebody, I'm sorry if you heard that at home. Anyway. And I have bloodied people up in my cute comeback. And my clap back, man, I've done it many, many, many times. And it's inevitable. We're human. We do it. But when we are brutal in our clapbacks, we leave no room for growth or grace for that person that just said that horrible thing. And don't we want them to quit saying those things? Don't we want them to quit feeling those things? How do we get there? By showing ungrace? People do not change just because we kick them in the teeth. Does their heart need to change? Oh, yeah, it really does. We, we don't get there by beating them with a stone. We flip the table, but we don't throw stones. We do use our words. We definitely use our words. Mira Hadlow says, Before you silence yourself to keep the peace, ask yourself, what is the worst thing that can happen if I use my voice? Usually the answer is, this person may dislike me. That's it. If you are silencing yourself for this reason, they already don't like you. They only like a fictional version of you. Raise your voice. Flip the table. I shared this story once before, uh, so for those of you that have heard it before, my apologies. Right before I moved to Illinois, <clears throat> I was having a conversation with my mom and dad, and we have come to see the world very differently over the years. And uh, I'm a good Southern girl. You don't disrespect mom and dad, and you don't talk back, and you don't all that stuff. And so I've tried very hard to be honorable. But um, we were having a conversation in the garage, and um, my dad intentionally uh, misused uh, Kamala Harris's name. This was before the election. And it was in a nasty way. He thought it was cute. He'd heard it somewhere else and thought it was cute. He didn't even realize. And I had to stop him. And I said, Dad, that's not okay. That's just not okay. You, you know her name is Kamala. And I, I get that you don't want to vote for her. But you don't have to degrade her name. And he said what he needed to say. And I said, Dad, I don't like Donald Trump. And I have said things about that man that are terrible and awful, and in my estimation, very, very true. But not only is Kamala Harris made in the image of God, so is Donald Trump. And they are beloved of God. And that does not give me the right to call them out of their name. 
That hurts, doesn't it? I mean, it hurts. It just hurts. But Colossians 3 applies to our political people too. It really does. It applies to the Kim Kardashians of the world and the people that are just, ugh, whatever. It does apply to them too. I felt myself getting angry the more we were having this conversation. Just that anger. And, and I knew that I was more, um, more, well, more researched on this topic than he was. I knew I had the answers that would trump his every time. I knew that. And so we were kind of doing that for a little bit. Really wasn't getting anywhere. And I said, Dad, I said, here's the thing. Donald Trump is never going to show up at your house in Belmont, Mississippi and ask to have some McDonald's with you in your living room. And Joe Biden's not going to show up at my house and want to have a beer with me on my back porch. But you and I will always be father and daughter. And that relationship matters. So can we just push them out of it right now? And let's just focus on me and you. He got quiet for a minute. My mom comes out. She's crying. And she says... I'm just so afraid that our country is going to turn into a socialist nation. Now, and here's my thing. I don't even know what socialism means. I, I, I don't know. Is that Russia? I don't know. I, but I knew she didn't either. <laughs> right? We're just rehashing talking points off the news, are we not? But here was the, what changed it for me with her in that moment because there was that inclination to be like, oh my God, quit watching that. But when I looked into her eyes, and she's about the same height as me, and she was looking straight at me, and we were really close to one another, and she's just got all this hurt and pain in her eyes and fear and anxiety and worries. I saw her finally. Rather than seeing how wrong she was, how ill-informed and ill-advised and ignorant, I was able to see her in that moment. And for her, those fears were real. And my heart melted. I hugged her, and I said, I know, Mom, I know you're afraid. It's going to be okay. I love you. Are my parents wrong about those things? Yeah, they are. And I made the choice to say so. Speak up when people are wrong, when people are spouting QAnon. Ugh. Go ahead and say it if you need to. Hey, that's not, that's not right. John Kennedy is really dead. He's not coming back to Daly Plaza. I mean, he's really not. But we never do it without seeing that person made in the image of God. And if I cannot say that they are wrong without seeing them as God's beloved, maybe I need to put a pause on my words and just shut up. If I'm too angry, if I'm seeing them less than who God made them to be, if I just see how wrong they are and how right I am, Instead of seeing, maybe I see 
my blue jersey and their red jersey or my purple jersey. I don't even know what color it is anymore. I must choose to see them that with eyes that can see that I am wearing an all-purpose garment of love, not a red or blue jersey. We have to see people's humanity even when they're saying crazy stuff. We have to look past the angry words and the hateful rhetoric, hateful rhetoric and even the untruths that are being said, see their hurt, their fears, their disillusionment, their pain, and see them. We lower our shoulders and clench our grip, lower our eyebrows, maybe even close our eyes and open them, open them back up and see them. Put down our witty retorts, our pithy quips, and our rightness to see them. Kirsten Powers, in her new book, Saving Grace, quotes theologian Dorothy Solly, who grew up in Nazi Germany, and she calls upon us to borrow the eyes of God. Sanders says that it enables us to see the divinity in every person, no matter what they've done, what they believe, or who they voted for. Grace is giving other people space to not be you. Do we need to call out wrong-headed policies and, and immoral actions from our political leaders? You bet we do. We should. We should not be silent. But if someone sees the world differently than we do, we've got to find a way to give them grace for not being us. Who do I need to give space to not be me? Where is our commonality, our shared values? If it's only that we are both human, that is a fine place to start. Will you pray with me? God, I confess that I don't do this very well. No matter what side of political aisle I've ever been on, I've never done it very well. And God, I pray for a life that would not be marked by ungrace, but by grace. That I could see humanity in people that I think are stupid are ridiculous or out of line or that I can see humanity in all and that I can help others to see humanity in all. God, I pray for the grace to see that way. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.